We teach who we are. If we're going to teach who we are, we need to know the why of how we propose to teach. We need a compelling reason to help us to shape our practice and to situate it within that sense of belonging that comes from our people and our place. All of these things need to align to help us to do that which we need to do, that which we're called to do, that which we're compelled to do. At the end of the day, we are who we teach, but we're only who we teach because we teach who we are. I've really enjoyed the conversation with Michael Pope so far. This is episode three of our little conversation. It's all about practice. Let's go. Michael, thank you so much for joining uh, me again to have a wee chat about practice. You're welcome. My pleasure. Um, I want to jump into um, something straight away. You volunteer for things. You go and help in your community. You do um, service activities. You do this stuff yourself. Why is this an important part, not only of who you are, but also your teaching? Well, I got to go back to um, my university days. Many days, um, I'm in a I'm in a um, black fraternity and. Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. And part of one of our charges we learned um, is that you have to give back to your community. And that community can mean anywhere. It does not necessarily just mean um, the black community. It can mean any community that you're in. So as part of my experience as a young student at age 19 years old, we were doing community service, community service, and I saw the value of, of getting involved. And then when I came over to Japan, there's opportunities here. And I was like, you know what? How can you lead, how can you tell your students that they need to do these things? And my, my mantra has always been, is always, has always been, how can you tell students to do something if you're not doing it yourself? How can you tell your students to be a lifelong learner if you're not doing it yourself? How can you tell your students to volunteer or get involved if you're not doing it yourself? So you have to lead by example. So it started back then and I tried to encourage my students um, that you, know, you have to make a difference in the world. Uh, you have to be the change you want to see. Um, you have to, sometimes you have to be the only one to stand up. Um, but you need to stand up. You need to do it. That, I think that kind of uh, it has evolved into me trying to find ways to not only encourage myself to continue, but also to encourage the students. You can do these things. You can do this thing. Or you can find your own thing that you want to do. As long as you are finding a way to be a productive citizen. Okay. So... We need to be doing things that allow us to model for our students the competencies, mm -hmm. the character that we want them to have. That's okay. a great starting point. And I love what you do and the way you do it as well too. It's just, and it's just a natural part of who you are. There's nothing, there's no artifice to it. It's just, it just, it just flows out of you. Right at the beginning of our first conversation, you referred to the importance of research-driven work. So this first example of your practice comes from your spirit and your soul as much as anything else. <laughs> this second part of your practice, which is your research-driven stuff and your evidence-driven stuff, that's coming from your head. So talk to me about the importance of research-driven pedagogy and curriculum. Very good. So what, as I said before, I, I believe in lifelong learning. Um, so since I, grad, since I graduated university, I've been involved in the National Science Foundation. I've been involved in different research activities. 
um, always trying to find ways and keep myself relevant and up to date on what's going on in education or in or in the area that I'm that I'm currently that I was currently teaching. So I try to find experiences that allow me to look at ways to do problem-based learning or to do um, any kind of stewardship or conservation or to do things that allow me to find ways to encourage my students to connect to the world global education. So for the past at least eight to 10 years, I've been gung-ho finding fellowships, grants, grants and opportunities to look at different ways that I can, I can inspire my students or I can inspire my colleagues or I can find ways that some, based upon some research or evidence that um, is out there about this thing works for students. How, okay, that's great. How can I use that in my classroom? So I have, I have a, a thirst, I guess, for, for finding new things. I really want to find as much as I can because I believe that as a teacher, you have to give your kids the best opportunity, education opportunity possible. You have to educate yourself to prepare yourself to educate the student. So I've been very fortunate with Fulbright, work with Fulbright, um, Teachers for Global Classrooms, uh, National Endowment for Humanities, with research with them, National Education Association, NEA, Grant, uh, National Group Geographic, Lindblad Expeditions. And all those have given me more opportunities and more education that allows me to not only share with, with my colleagues, but, but to inspire my students. One thing I'm very proud of is, um, I work with an organization called IEARN, it's international organization IEARN, and we're in Japan and we represent JEARN. So it's an organization of, because um, teacher networks are very important, uh, teacher network of, of collaborators around the world. You get to collaborate with other, other teachers around the world. And with that project, we've been really looking at the rights of children and looking at how we can inspire kids. If you, if you can get kids to understand and appreciate the humanity of, of of being of, of interacting with other people at a young age, and then keep reinforcing that, and we will see a change. And that 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 is, I, I believe that is factual. So for the past four years now, this is our fourth year, we've been working with IEARN and JEARN, and we've been representing, even though we're an, we're an American school in Japan, we've been representing the country of Japan for four years um, as their component for this for this this activity. But again, it's, it's about helping the kids, helping the kids connect across the globe and helping them explore, express and explain the right, the needs for the rights of kids around the world. So that kind of goes back to, again, to volunteering as well, volunteerism as well. Yeah, it does. It, it, it really does because it, funnily enough, it's exactly the same answer as the first one, which is you lead by example, don't you? Because you're a scientist. So if you're a scientist, yeah. you should be doing science, shouldn't you? You need to be a scientist as an educator in the same way, you know, you need to be an historian. If you if you're teaching history, you know so much of you, you know it's you might use the deductive method and we might use the inductive method and we might meet halfway in the middle going in different <laughs> in different directions. But nonetheless, unless you are that which there is, unless you have pedagogical expertise, you know, and 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 unless you 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 have mastery over your pedagogical subject content. And whether that's as, a, as an elementary school teacher where you're covering everything or as, or as a, a, a middle school teacher where you're covering some things or a senior school teacher where you, you, you're covering a much more mm -hmm. narrow field, you need to have that expertise um, that, that sits there yes. um, behind, behind you. 
I'm interested in, like, I look at this list of things and I'm just embarrassed by my I've never done any of these sorts of things, so it's just <laughs> awesome. Like, you know, National Geographic Grosvenor Teacher Fellowship, the NEA Global Teacher Fellowship, National Geographic Certified Teacher. You've mentioned the Fulbright. There's the California Casualty Awards for Teaching Excellence, the Fulbright, you know, the Honeywell Educator at Space Camp, um, and we've mentioned your, um, your, your Presidential Award. There's so much going on there. Can you give me an example of something that you did that you investigated deeply? where you got an answer that you didn't like and that you actually had to change your practice in a way that you didn't think you should. So in other words, wow. can you tell me something that you've learned that didn't work rather than something <laughs> that did work? Well, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, because yeah, I told my students when I was teaching science, um, um, I tell them, you know, in science, you know, when you do something, it's nine times out of 10, it's not going to work. If it works the first time, be very skeptical. <laughs> so I think, um, the biggest thing that um, that I tried, um, I, 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 as many many educators, we think that because we have all this experience, we think because we have uh, we have these 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 courses and these degrees that we know everything. So as I was pursuing the presidential award the first time, I was I'm thinking, oh well, you know, I can teach this concept of waves because you know I've done this before. And so I was telling my students these, these, these things um, about, okay, this is how waves look and this is how, how we look at the waves and give them the different parts of, of, a, of a wave. And then, and, and then I realized that when I presented it to my peers, they, they were like, you know what, that sounds great, but that was so elementary. You didn't really explain anything. So I realized that I had to go back and reevaluate how I was teaching the material. I thought that I was doing a great job. And, and, and I think that that's why being part of organizations are important and why being reviewed by your peers is important because it teaches you to reevaluate your understanding of the content. We think because we, understand, we know the content, we've had all this schooling, that everything is, doesn't, nothing has changed. But in, in actuality, learning is constant. It's on a continuum. It continues. It continues. It led, uh, knowledge is, is always being acquired at different levels. And you start to, it taught me to really start to go back and reevaluate and reassess what I had learned. And so I said, okay, great. Um, I understand this, but what is, the, what is, what is the, new, the new knowledge on this? Michael, I want to take you to a, a moment that you mentioned just, mm -hmm. just then, which is that moment where your colleague opens up his or her mouth and says, blat, and you go, oh. And in that moment, we've taken you from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. And even a peerless <laughs> teacher like you, you're confronted by that reality at that point and going, oh, gee, that didn't work. No. Yep. How does that feel for you at that moment when somebody gives you that piece of feedback? Wow. And what sort of support do you need for your colleagues? <laughs> wow. Okay. What, what? From your colleagues. Yeah. First of all, it was, it was, it was, um, it was very humbling. You realize you, you you knock the chip off your shoulder. <laughs> you realize, oh yeah. Um, it and but again, it, it takes. Um, what what did I need from my colleagues? Um, uh, I, I, that's exactly what I need from my colleagues. I needed I didn't need anything else but that because it, it taught me that never forget that you are an educator, and the things that you say can affect the lives of a child positively or negatively by either giving them correct information or misinformation. 
or by giving them incorrect information. So not saying this might just be wrong altogether. So I said, oh yeah, I need to really think about. So it just taught me to reevaluate what I'm doing. So what do I need? Uh, I think that's something we all need to do. We, we try to do, I think that many organizations or, or many schools, they try to say, hey, you can go preview your colleagues and watch your colleagues teach. You can kind of spy in their classrooms. I think that's a, that is very valuable because it allows you to see um, just how people are disseminating information to these kids and how kids are receiving it. And you can, you can reevaluate, okay, wow, am I doing it this way? Do, are my students really gathering this information from this, this method? And it teaches you also when they come into your classroom, they can evaluate you. But again, it's not in a negative way. It's, it's, more, it's, for, self, it's for, 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 building you up, for building you up personally, helping and you personally progress. And, and do you initiate this or is this forced on you by an uncaring system? Actually, um, usually it's, it's, yeah, right. <laughs> usually uh, it's, it's how's, that, how's, that, how's, that, how's that for a loaded question? <laughs> no, no, it's true because many times it's encouraged, but many people, uh, many colleagues, they kind of shy away from it. I, I, I think it's great because it's like, you know, you, uh, it's better to know than not know. You, you can think you're an amazing teacher and then somebody comes in and says, you know what, that's good. But as, I mean, as another teacher, not as an administrator, as a teacher, because administrators come with a different, of course, they come with a different approach. They're looking, a teacher comes in as, if I was teaching this class, wow, would I do it that way? So they can really, they can really break you down to help you understand, as an educator, what, how are you really doing it, rather than I'm evaluating you to give you a score based on your performance. They're looking at you as, are you really meeting the goals of, of a teacher and giving your students the best possible education? So I like that better. I, don't, I think it's, it's more, it has more value. I initiate it, and I've initiated it for people, and I've had people who've, who've asked me, can you please come to my classroom and see what I'm doing? I said, sure, I'd be glad to, and I'll give you honest feedback. But it's not something that, that people normally uh, want because they, people are afraid to, to share, to show, their, to show their, um, their weaknesses, to show that they're not, that they are weak in any way in a classroom. Many, many teachers, they, they, they want to be the, the only voice in that classroom, and we have to we have to break down that stereotype, that wall. We have to. It's a community. Community teachers are communities. They're not individuals. They're communities. We're there for the betterment of the kid. Um, as they say, it takes a community to raise raise a child. It takes a community to educate a child. Also, we're communities. We're not individuals in this little this little area by ourselves. We are here for the benefit of that child. And I think if we have that mindset, it makes those kind of things easier. And I and I needed that. I need I need that 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 slap in the face that that awakening, because as you start going through and you start becoming successful, you start oh well you know I'm above I'm above everything else I, I I've gotten this and you realize oh wait a minute you're not above everything else you do make mistakes you are human you can improve and I think that's what I welcomed. I think it takes a community to educate a teacher as well too, because Here we go. you know. Here we go. We would call that community a community of inquiry and practice. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you now, if I can, about inquiry and about the importance of asking good questions. Because it's, if there's one thing that I'll, I, you know, when, when every now and then when I'm asked to talk with young teachers or, mm -hmm. or training, uh, teachers who are, are training uh, to become teachers uh, about, I will uh, and pick one specific thing, it will be about questions and about learning how to ask really good questions. So, Sensei, teach me <laughs> about how you ask questions. 
<laughs> How do I ask questions? Okay, well, um, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's really based upon, uh, with inquiry, it's really based upon interest, interest levels. So what you want to do, first of all, is find out um, the interest level of your students, you know, by asking them, okay, have you ever thought about electricity? Like, well, no. Have you thought about why this, this car requires um, a battery to run? Like, why can't a car require gasoline? So, so I think it start, the inquiry starts with, 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 with interest. If you get the interest of the student or incorporate the interest of the student into the initial question, question answering session, it makes the questioning of the content that much more easier. So, it's, you, so you use questions to set up the learning. So what do you what do you think about um, this and, and allowing the kids to to kind of like, oh, what, what do I think? Why do you care what I think? Because what you, this is what you think is going to drive the discussion. Or, Bob, have you ever thought have you ever thought about why it rains on the other side of a mountain? Well, I never thought about that. Well, what do you think? And then using that as a starting point. Now, that could be done one of two ways. The first way could be, of course, in a, in a whole group discussion, or what I've done also is I give my I feed my students questions, preliminary questions, to guide the instruction before we come into the, before they come to the classroom. I believe in a flip the flip approach because that allows the kids to open their mind before they get into the classroom. So questioning becomes easier because they have an idea of what we're going to be discussing. So I think a flip approach helps. But once in the classroom, you have to remember that questioning is more than just the questioning. It's also the think time too. You got to give kids an ch- opportunity to actually process what you just asked them, and and not being afraid if they give you an answer that you don't that you're not expecting, and trying to immediately redirect them. Sometimes you ask them a question, they may give you something you don't you don't you don't that you're not looking for, but rather than saying shooting them down, say well let, let's take that a step further, and I try to also run the gambit, and I try to pull different kids in. Um, but then again, you do, you deal, you have to have a different relationship with your students as well. The more comfortable the kids are with you in the classroom, the more of a family environment you've built in the class, the easier, the easier it is to kind of pick and choose kids and ask questions. If you don't have that relationship with the kids, then the comfort level is going to be extremely low and they're not going to want to re- respond to you. So that goes back to relationships too as well. So questioning, but if you're a new, a new pre-service teacher, I would say you want, might want to load your classroom by giving kids questions to think about, things to ponder, two or three questions to ponder before they walk into that classroom. Or give them a, a, some questions to ponder before they come back to the next session. So you kind of so you kind of start the discussion without even speaking to them. So questioning is it's a very it's a tricky thing for a teacher. It's very tricky because I've gone to classes where kids are prepped. They walk to the classroom and all of a sudden it's like I never prepped them before. It's like, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? I walked some classrooms, I didn't have to prep the students. They had questions. I mean, they were just like, they were nonstop questioning because the interest level was so high. So that's why I say interest level sometimes is a determining factor that we look for. If they're interested, they're going to ask you all kinds of questions. But then again, sometimes you have to pique the interest too. Yeah, yeah. I was taught by um, a fabulous kindergarten teacher many, many years ago Mm -hmm. about the importance of uh, meeting the students in the place where they are mm. right now yep. and holding out a hand and walking them towards wow. where you need them like to that. be. 
and then letting go of the hand and letting them run ahead of you. It's a, lo- it's a lovely image, isn't it? Only a kindergarten teacher would wow, think of something that, that beautiful and, 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 that, and that fundamental around that. Um, and I was reminded too, while you were talking about the importance of allowing time for students to think and respond. Um, one of the partners in the School for Tomorrow, which is our, you know, the, the organisation from which Game Changes operates, is a wonderful lady called Leanne Wilson, and uh, she's our partner, Indigenous Education and Community and Healing. And Leanne will talk about yarning up. And yarning up is about principles of having a structured conversation within a group using using Indigenous wisdom around that, you know, you know Australian First Nations um, wisdom. And to, you know, to yarn is to tell a story. You know, to tell a yarn, to spin a yarn, literally. Spin a yarn, yeah. yeah, spin a yarn. <laughs> so for, that, that's for anybody out there who's listening who doesn't understand the, these strange <laughs> Australian terms. I'm going to give you another one in a moment. And she will say that there are special sticks and you get to hold the stick and then it's your turn to speak. And that you can't speak unless you've got the stick, but then you can pass the stick on to somebody else. And you have to count six kangaroos in between the conversations. So you have to listen to what you say and then in your own mind you count one kangaroo two kangaroo three kangaroo and at that point you're thinking about what the person just said and then before you open your mouth and say something stupid like i would you've got to count another kangaroo three kangaroos so four kangaroo five kangaroo six kangaroo so that you can form what you have to say in a really considered fashion and you know for our, for our listeners out there our amazing producer oliver um he has a habit of editing out all the white noise in and around but unfortunately what that means is sometimes it, it makes it seem as though these conversations there are never any pauses in there the best conversations we have in game changes are those where there are quite long pauses in the middle of it and people <laughs> but whether it's us or whether it's whether it's our guests uh, are just stopping to sit and think on a question mm. there's just no mm. harm around that whatsoever there's no harm at all so i have i have one last question about your practice if i can and then i'm going to try and draw it all together i want to talk about inspiration Mm. so let's talk about where does your inspiration come from and then i'm going to ask you a couple of other questions about inspiration to follow on as you said before you teach who you are i tell my students i had some amazing teachers growing up um I was, first of all, I was, I went, I was, I was a honor student at seventh grade. So I was a projected honor student at seventh grade. So I took a lot of high level classes in high school. High school for me was eighth grade through 12. So I took a lot of high level classes. So not very many kids, you know, in classes, but I had some amazing teachers because they were very academic. They were like, this is the, this is what you're going to do. There was no, there, there were no excuses. There was no, um, um, late work, nothing was turned in late. It was, this is, this is what you're going to do because this is what ne- it needs to be done. You are accountable for your work. You're accountable for yourself. You're accountable to your partner. You're, you were, you were held to a very high standard. So when you, when you get, when you become a teacher or an educator, you look back on those experiences and you grasp, you grasp back for those teachers who, who were inspirational or who were what you consider to be a very influential or a, a, or a good role model or what it meant to be a teacher. So I had a great teacher, Dr. Pat Wortham, um, and I was able to reconnect with her about a month ago. 
and she's my advanced biology teacher and she was she was hard as hard as stones as tough as nails but she, you knew she loved you in her own little harsh way but um but because her expectation she expected a lot from her students she expected you to be responsible for yourself she expected you to value the education she expected you to push yourself beyond your limits and to not accept anything less than almost near perfection. Now, if you almost got the almost near perfection, you're good. If you decided just to be mediocre, you were you you needed to up your game. So I used her and I used her as my marker for what it meant to be a successful teacher. So when I walked into the classroom, I had a high expectation of my kids. And the kids, people were like, but your expectation is so high. I said, if you set high expectations for kids, they will meet those expectations. If you set low expectations, then why are you setting expectations at, uh, in, uh, at all? So I, I'm aware that all kids cannot meet the high expectations, but I want them to shoot for something better than themselves. And then I looked at, okay, when it comes to accountability, I want them to be accountable for, each, for themselves. But Mr. Pope, you expect the kids to be responsible and you expect them to meet deadlines. I said, yes, because in the real world, there are going to be deadlines. In the real world, there are going to be expectations. And they need to understand that now, so it becomes who they are, who they are as they move throughout this journey of education. So, so it's then, not just it's it's not just about being a role model. It's not just about setting high standards and expectations. This notion of inspiration. It's also about the idea that you are going to rehearse people for a lifetime of success. So you are going to walk them through the steps and show them. Yeah that they can get there. So you don't just set the bar high. It's also about how you create that sense of possibility in their mind. Exactly, it's exactly, exactly. And 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 they and then that they understand they understand that. Yeah. One thing I did also I think was very pretty nice is um I used to always do presenta presentations for my students, have them present. So I say one day you're gonna have to stand before a person and ask for a job. So you gotta be able to present yourself or you know go to university, you have to have a, a um interview, you got to present yourself. So I had kids come and they would dress up and present their research or present their, their lab work. And, and parents like, oh my God, what are you doing? I said, they have to, it's, it's, we're not, as teachers, we don't just teach education, we teach life. And so in life, you have to be able to present yourself. In life, you have to be able to know that in certain situations, you have to look the role. You have to play the part and look the role. So for many years, that was like, that was the thing. Kids, kids enjoy. They they didn't not like it initially, but eventually it became like, hey, are we dressing up this week? It became a a thing. They liked that because it set them apart from other classes. And again, it's it's about you're not just teaching the content. As teachers, we teach we teach life. We teach things that are not in the book, and that's the joy and pride of being a teacher. You don't just teach your content, you're teaching this student to prepare them for life. Okay, so that's one type of inspiration. And I really and I really appreciate the way in which you take a concept like inspiration and you actually break it down into its component parts so that it becomes a set of behaviors which others can replicate, you know, to, to start with. And then they can iterate from there. So that's good scientific methodology if I'm talking about iteration, replication, iteration. There we go. Um, and to a certain extent, this is about the larger than life moment and the larger than life person. 
people also get that inspire that sense of inspiration from the person who they sit next to day in day out the many mm. many little things that they do can you give me an example of somebody who really inspired you through their diligence and their effort on a day-to-day basis i had this one student she's graduating college now and i had her um, and she's in my class. She's an extreme introvert, a very bright young lady, top scores. So it was never really an issue of academics. It was an issue of socialization. So she would come to my classroom and we would do presentations. I would, and I would say, okay, you're going to have to stand up and present your data. She was like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I was like, no, you need to stand up and present your data. So the whole year she was in my class, she reluctantly did this and, and she was forced to work with other people. She was never, had never before been forced or to work with anyone. She was like, if you would like to, or you can sit in the corner and do your own little thing. So I said, no, you need to work with other people. So for years, she and I, for, for that whole year, we fought back and forth. We didn't really fight. It was, it, was, it was more so, you're going to do this because you need to do this to get this grade. And so I kind of had to give her, make it that way for her. And so she struggled with that throughout the whole year. And then at the end of the year, throughout all of that, she made her first B in her life in my class. Now I'm saying that because this goes beyond that moment. That's a huge, but that's, that's huge, isn't it? That's absolutely oh, it, oh, it was, she had never, she made a, she had never made a B in her life ever. She had the top scores in school. She went to high school. I mean, she went to, to, to high, ninth grade. And every day she saw me, she would avoid me. She'd avoid looking at me, <laughs> go in a different direction. The year she graduated, she came to my classroom. She said, she, after she graduated, she, said, she came back to my classroom. She's in, she's in university, university students came to my class. She said, Mr. Pope, she came back to Japan. She's Jap- half Japanese student. She came back to Japan and said, Mr. Pope, I said, what are you doing here? I thought you graduated. She said, I just want to just tell you that I know that I gave you a lot of grief and I struggled in your classroom, but your class was the hardest class I'd ever been in before. And I said, why is that? She said, she said because you made me work with other people, you made me present and I did not feel very comfortable. And I struggled with that the whole time. But your class allowed me to be able to do those things in high school. And now I'm in college and I'm studying to be a math teacher. And I have to deal with people all the time. That's so the thing, I never had your class. Yeah, so that's so watching her struggle and again, like I said, many times, middle school teachers, we never see the results of what we do, what we do. You never have that student who comes back and tell you, tells you that, hey, you know, you inspired me. But to have her come. And then she came back last year, says she, and she's graduating now. And she said, I'm graduating this year and I'm getting a job. And I want to just thank you because your cl- I struggled in your class, but I persevered. And I was able to not only use those skills you taught me to be successful in high school, but now I'm graduating, top of my class in, in university, and I'm going to be a math teacher. So that Isn't was that was a first, that, yeah, that was a great. I mean, because I would never, first of all, I, would, I you know, I would never have had had the kid come back. It's very rare they come back to middle school teachers, and then to have her graduate and use and to say that you influenced her decision to become a teacher. There's a the thing, isn't it? You know, of course, Michael. When I asked you who inspires you, you talk about a student, don't you? Because <laughs> you live your life through your students, don't you? And you teach life and it just flows out of everything that you do and every part of who you are. I just want to say thank you very much for the opportunity. 
of getting to know you through these three conversations. It's just been an absolute privilege and just a a real joy um, to learn from somebody who really knows their craft backwards with such a good sense of humour and it doesn't take themselves too seriously either. (laughs) Hey, um, hey, uh, thank you, sir. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will as well too. Go well in what you do. And, and continue doing what you do because, you know, it's, it's, it's people like you who help us to understand what our real purpose is in education. So thank you, Michael A. Pope. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.